Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Diana Dorr, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Max Oitman about his new book, Forging the Golden Urn, The Qing Empire and the Politics of Reincarnation in Tibet, published by the Columbia University Press in 2018. Using both archival sources in the Manchu language and chronicles of Tibetan elites, this book reveals the origins of the Golden Urn tradition, a Qing-era law mandating that the reincarnations of prominent Tibetan Buddhist monks be identified by drawing lots from a golden urn, as well as its implications in modern and contemporary geopolitics of Asia. Why was this tradition invented? Why did this, uh, what did this law mean to the Qing rulers and Tibetan Buddhists? Why was this law resurrected later by the People's Republic of China in 1995? These are some of the questions that this book explores while shedding new light on matters of sovereignty, faith, and law in the study of Qing frontier histories. Dr. Whiteman, uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good to, good to talk with you. Great. Um, so, Max, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. How did you become interested in East Asian and Inner Asian studies and specifically in Tibet? Um, so that's a, a good question. I was, um, so after I, I, actually my interest in Asia really began when I was an undergraduate at Carleton College in Minnesota. And, uh, I had a really, um, amazing undergrad prof, but he didn't do Chinese studies. He did, uh, the former Soviet Union and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, a guy named Adib Khalid. I remember taking his class on sort of the early Soviet Union, and he gave a lecture about how the Soviet Union had established or been part of this process of establishing independent states, or at that time, Soviet republics uh, in in Central Asia. And uh, it came as like just a real revelation to me, the degree to which the Soviet Union had played such a major role in creating, really in creating nations. And how in in the early 1990s, it was sort of bitten from behind by uh, um, uh, by nationalist movements. Well, actually, not so much in Central Asia, certainly in the Balkans, but other places, but sort of how these sort of states had been created in that region. And the whole notion that um, countries in Central Asia had actually really complicated history was something I'd never encountered before and never been familiar with. And uh, so while I was an undergraduate, after kind of getting inspired there, I traveled in Central Asia, um, in Mongolia, and then in Siberia, um, Western China quite a bit, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, and uh, um, sort of got more and more interested in it after that. Just the landscape was impressive, and um, the kind of just the people that I met on those trips and the hospitality that I received was pretty inspiring. Oh, thank you for sharing um, your journey with us. 
Um, now, can you maybe tell us uh, about how you came to write uh, Forging the Golden Urn? Um, yeah, so I actually, it's a kind of a, I never really anticipated or imagined that I'd write a book, book about a golden urn. It sort of always seemed a little bit like a topic that wasn't all that interesting. Um, uh, and it's not something, it's not where I intended to end up when I began my uh, dissertation research. Um, or yeah, well, any kind of research when I was a was an, uh, when I was a PhD student. Um, actually, my original sort of direction in terms of um, academic research was in in Xinjiang, and I spent a long time studying Uyghur um, through the early 2000s and into about 2007 2008. Um, my MA thesis was on Xinjiang, uh, but in around 2007, I really came to the conclusion that. Um, that Xinjiang studies was going to be a really hard field to continue working in. Um, it was hard to find, I was really interested in social history, really like sort of what was going on on the ground in different places in the Qing period. Um, and, and looking more and more and spending time in Xinjiang, I found it, it was very difficult to find sources about sort of the fine-grained daily lives of people in the 18th and 19th centuries especially because in Xinjiang, there was very little archival material that was available. Um, subsequently, I mean, we've had the publication of large numbers of Manchu language memorials from Xinjiang, which is beginning to give us an insight into those regions. But it was, a very, it was always gonna be a very top-down Chinese or Qing-centered or Manchu-centered view of what was happening on the frontier. And that wasn't very satisfying to me. Um, the other problem with continuing to do sort of Central Asian studies, as I thought, was that at some point, you're going to have to learn not only Uyghur or or Chagatai or other local languages, but you're definitely going to have to learn Russian. You're going to have to learn Persian and possibly even Arabic. And, you know, in midway or at the end of my MA, I really thought that that was probably unfeasible. Uh, so I decided to do turn to more towards Tibetan studies, which I sort of thought was easier, I'm, I've been uh, disabused of that notion now, but it seems to me that you could, first of all, the exciting thing about doing research on Tibet or Tibetan regions uh, of, of the Qing dynasty was that there were certainly lots of, of local level um, uh, historical materials, chronicles, gazetteers, um, biographies, uh, and even a variety of archival materials. So in 2009, I was able to get access to a large number of archival sources from Qinghai, what's now Qinghai province, the Qinghai Provincial Archives. So I was able to begin working with about 3,000 yuan or 3,000 fascicles um, of archival material from the late, from the late Qing, from the Guangxu period, from an office which had been set up in the Qianlong period, so in the, in the 1760s. Um, and had uh, persisted, or in, you know, down into 1912, this office called the Office of the Xunhua Subprefect, who had been responsible for governing a kind of very, or at least supervising a very multicultural region uh, of part of Amdo. So there was Tibetans in there, there were Hui in there, there were Mongols in there. So it's very rich, like local source base, and the materials were in Chinese, but also in Tibetan, and many of the materials were in both Tibetan and Chinese, which was really fascinating. So, okay, so in the first, you know, this appeared to be a, 
you know, unlike doing Xinjiang or other parts of, of Central Asia or other parts of the Qing frontiers, here was a region which which had a rich, rich historical base and uh, and provided you could get your get a little bit of uh, ability with Tibetan, then it seemed like it was possible to begin reading this material. So that's why I sort of moved from, from doing Central Asia more into Tibetan studies. Um, and uh, this project with the Golden Urn, it really, uh, I was working on a project primarily, and I'm still working on a project right now, which is about the legal history of, of Amdo or Qinghai and Gansu and parts of Sichuan uh, from the 1600s all the way up to the to the end of the Republican period. We're talking about local legal culture, how did it change? Um, but in the midst of doing that project, I kept coming across uh, materials about the golden urn and, the, and searches for reincarnate uh, lamas or monks or choku. And uh, that really surprised me actually, because I had always sort of read or been under the impression that um, uh, the Qing state was not particularly involved in searches for reincarnate lamas, um, that this thing I'd heard about once or twice before, the golden urn, this uh, sort of lottery for uh, identifying um, the authentic candidate was something which had been rarely used and, and uh, so on and so forth. So I was quite um, surprised actually to see a lot of materials about the golden urn and actually just read in mainstream materials and in other archival documents coming out of Amdo, uh, local Tibetans actually writing to the Qing state and requesting that the Qing state use this use this procedure. Um, and uh, so I began to get a little bit curious about it. And uh, when I began looking at the literature and turning back the page to the 1790s when the procedure, when this ritual was initially invented, I found that there was lots of discussion about um, whether the urn was used or not, a little bit of discussion about why it had been created. Um, but no, no one had really actually done any work to figure out where this, where this whole thing had come from. Like why did Chenlong or his officials actually come up with the idea of, of using a golden urn, uh, a lottery, to solve problems or whatever problems it was that they perceived in Central Asia or, or Inner Asia. And the other question that really came to me was, well, what did they think was actually happening when they used this uh, procedure, when they, when they used this ritual? So it seemed like there was a lot of actually interesting questions uh, that could be explored by, uh, um, by talking or, or investigating the, the origins of this, of this ritual. Yeah, certainly. And, and this is kind of tying into our next question. Um, and you point out in the introduction of the book that this project um, of the Golden Urn is to return to the original polyglots um, conversations of the Qing era, right? And test some of the longstanding assumptions about the Golden Urn tradition um, uh, that have made from both scholars in the West and scholars in the People's Republic of China. Uh, what are some of the assumptions that your book and mythology is trying to challenge here. Um, so, yeah, one of the as I said, as I wrote in the book, one of the one of the underlying goals here is to sort of is to write or to to um, recover the original script, so recover the original uh, discussions um, about this procedure, 
both in the 1790s and then going on across the, 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 the 1800s. And the reason for this is that, that this ritual, the golden urn has become extremely, it was, it was politicized of course in the, in the 1790s and the 1800s, uh, but it has a really different meaning uh, in modern China and, uh, and among exiled Tibetans right now. So really the golden urn has become this um, very important symbol of Chinese nationalism, of, uh, of the unity of a nation which was created in the early 20th century or, or, a, or a nation which was reimagined in the early 20th century, this nation called the, the Zhonghua Minzu. So this broader sense of, of uh, being Chinese so the Zhonghua Minzu really is, of course, the, the kind of the Chinese nationalist solution to the to the problem that that they perceived in that you had the the former Qing Empire and it had a lot of different peoples. It had the the Han Chinese uh, in the former uh, provinces of the Ming State. It had Mongols in Inner Mongolia and Outer Mongolia. It had uh, the Manchu Banner populations, Manchu Mongol and Han and Marshall Banner populations that had Tibetans, that had all kinds of peoples. But it didn't really have a cohesive single unitary nation or nationality. And so the Zhonghua Minzu was the solution to that, sort of taking the word Chinese and expanding it to include all these other peoples. And so the Golden Urn has become, in, in my opinion, really a symbol of that, Zhonghua Minzu Chinese nation. It's a symbol of the unity of Tibetans and Han as modern Chinese people. Uh, and so when you read Chinese um, uh, writing about this, or at least mainland Chinese uh, um, academic scholarship on this issue, it's not really something which they can question. It's not really something they can, they're willing to probe the origins. This is a institution that was, it's a symbol of the unity of, of the Chinese people. And therefore it's really not really politically correct to, to poke too deeply into the, into the historical dustbin to figure out why this thing came into existence. Now, the other reason why it's, you know, it's extremely um, difficult to talk about this issue is because of course it's, um, it's also a symbol of Chinese sovereignty, territorial sovereignty, and political sovereignty um, over over Tibet. And um, uh, and the argument made is that it was you know it's used from the 1790s all the way down to the present, and and it was and Chinese scholars would say this is uh, emblematic or symbolic of the degree to which um, Tibetans embraced the uh this the sense of being chinese or being part of this um greater chinese people and so these are all very very anachronistic interpretations of what was happening in the 1800s and, their, and the late 1700s so my goal really was to try to figure out well what what um what really was going on and and what did china mean from the perspective of of tibetans writing in the 1790s or the early 1800s um, what did Qing sovereignty really, what did it entail um, in, in those periods? Uh, there's also a lot of um, assumptions about how the Qing state or previous Chinese governments used uh, Buddhism to attract the support and allegiance of 
different populations in Inner Asia, most importantly, the Mongols and the Tibetans. You know, and it's sort of this this uh, understanding seems to me also quite overly simplistic. So, you know, the idea here is that, well, the, the Qing state supported Tibetan Buddhism, therefore, and patronized monasteries and monks and, and incarnate lamas and, and established all these beautiful Tibetan Buddhist religious sites, both in Beijing, outside of Beijing, and, and across Inner Asia. And therefore, Tibetans just loved the Qing state and they thought of themselves as, uh, as Chinese somehow. Um, I think that's all, you know, highly problematic. And so I really wanted to figure out what actually was going on, especially because so much of our study about Qing period or yeah, Qing period Tibet is really based on a set of institutions and objects that are in Beijing or, or at best maybe at Chengde, the summer palace, you know, about four hours, you know, train ride now north of Beijing. And I don't think that, you know, the vast majority of Mongols or Tibetans ever visited these sites, right? So what did they, what did they actually learn about the Qing state? There's been too much emphasis, I think, on the structures and objects and architecture of Beijing in our understanding of just how it was that the Qing state established and sustained itself in Inner Asia. And, and interesting. Um, and from your revealing of this original polyglot conversation, um, a really interesting kind of approach emerges, uh, one that it's um, taking the Qing Empire as colonial. Right? So in the book, you also introduce the idea that, the, you know, there is colonialism um, throughout the Qing kind of occupation or um, of this vast lands um, combining parts of um, China proper and also Inner Asia. Can you tell us more about this approach and, and utilities in the book? Yeah, indeed. So this is, I think that using the word colonial or colonialism to talk about um, uh, Qing governance uh, of Inner Asia, Inner Mongolia, Outer Mongolia, Xinjiang and Tibet is, uh, is definitely a loaded word. And one of the problems with using the word colonialism is, is it, it just does not translate very well into Chinese. So when I have conversations with um, scholars in, in mainland China, when you begin to talk about colonialism, it's just it's such a pejorative term, and it and it and it instantly conjures up images of of um, very Marxist in, of Marxist in, interpretations of sort of high European imperialism and, and gross exploitation. And it fundamentally, you know, assumes that the rule of the metropole over the periphery is illegitimate. Um, you know, so that's one package of, of interpretations of colonialism. But for, for me, I'm much more interested in, in the way that colonialism is used as an analytical tool in, in uh, subaltern studies and in, in understandings of India, um, uh, in you know, parts of uh, Africa, but also in the Russian Empire, and of course even in, in the United States or during the period of the Western expansion. Um, and I think that for for in my book, the utility of colonialism is uh, maybe twofold. Uh, one is that it, uh, I think it's really important to think about it. It, it, it's a useful frame because it 
it really overtly puts us in a conversation with other imperial systems around the same time. So the British, Russian, or French, or other imperial systems. Uh, and I think that's important because for a very long time, people talked about Chinese imperial systems in isolation and didn't really think about the ways in which uh, they resembled um, other imperial formations, but also were often distinct. And I think that what's interesting about putting China in contrast with other imperial systems is that oftentimes we can now see better what was unique or distinct about the, the Qing formation. The second reason I find colonialism is useful in my book is not because it gives us a, a quick and reductive understanding of, say, an economic relationship between Tibet and, and, um, and China, or because it, it assumes necessarily that there was a huge some sort of population transfer between uh, China proper and Tibet in the Qing period, which well, that certainly didn't happen. We had only a very limited number of, of Chinese or Manchu and other Mongol banner people actually stationed or traveling into Tibet. And really until right down until about 1907 or 1908, the Qing state never had much intention to, to radically transform Tibet or to incorporate it much more deeply into the provincial system of China proper. So in many levels, I guess I'm sort of going on a tangent here, but in many levels, of course, colonialism does not make uh, immediate sense as an analytical tool for talking about the relationship between Tibet and the Qing. But I think what does make sense is the cultural and intellectual aspect of, 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 of colonialism. And especially in the second part of my book, what I'm trying to bring up, bring to the surface is the degree to which, much like in other imperial systems, the Qing metropole, which was itself a very multicultural metropole, full of Manchu, Mongol, Han Chinese uh, officers and, and officials, they had very uh, idiosyncratic and particularistic views of what Tibetan Buddhism was and what authentic and real Tibetan Buddhism was. And they felt that their superior forms of knowledge, even when it came to Tibetan Buddhism, entitled them to certain kinds of privileges vis-a-vis -vis Inner Mongolia, Mongolia, and, uh, and Tibet. And what I really was surprised and fascinated to read in detail about when I began looking through the documents is the degree to which the Qianlong Emperor um, many of his officials really felt entitled um, to kind of edit the Tibetan Buddhist tradition on the basis of a notion that they had a kind of superior form of knowledge. And um, I think that's the place where the Qing state looks very, very similar to that of the British, uh, particularly in India or the Russians in Central Asia. In both of those other cases, for instance, the imperial metropole and its agents had a strong sense they, through their own systems of knowledge, through their universities and colleges and sort of their philology and their, their European post-enlightenment sort of systems of knowledge that they knew more about Hinduism, for example, or they knew more about Islam than the local people did. And therefore they had a, they had a, they had a sense of entitlement to sort of reconstruct and create what they felt was more authentic form of Islam or, or Hinduism in their colonial territories. And, and the Qing state is very much, I think, doing something quite similar. It's not just simply patronizing local Tibetan Buddhists. It often was trying to edit their own traditions. 
through massive projects of translation sometimes, but also through projects like the Golden Urn. All right, this is very interesting. Um, and, and now maybe let's go into um, the chapters in the book. It's really interesting that um, in the book, the chapters are organized in acts um, and in different themes. Um, so in Act 1, um, the royal regulations, uh, you explore the deliberative process that lay behind the invention of the Golden Urn in 1792. Um, so how did the Qing state come to possess a monopoly over the arts of divination and prognos- um, prognostication in Tibet and Mongolia and even beyond? So I think one of the basic purposes of that first act, in addition to sort of trying to figure out, well, where did the idea for the golden urn come from? Uh, what did they actually think they were trying to do? And that, and that, and we're talking here about the about 1791 and 1792, also a little bit of sort of the winter of 1793. Um, and one of the underlying arguments of that chapter is that uh, the attempt to sort of establish what they viewed as a more permanent and secure sovereignty, a more um, uh, exclusive form of decision-making over Tibet. And they used, in their own language, in the Manchu language of these sources, this word Tosa, which quite literally in the words of the emperor meant sort of an ultimate decision-making authority, this ability to to really implement one's decisions and have them them be uh, acknowledged and observed. Um, that this desire to establish sovereignty in Tibet was not something which they had been planning and thinking about for a very long time. There was really something about the events of 1790, 1791, 1792 that uh, led them down a chain of sort of discussions that ultimately resulted in the creation of the golden of the golden urn, in addition to a large number of other uh, uh, political. Uh, reforms in Tibet. Um, so really, it's like one of the major goals here is to sort of reestablish this moment, 1792, as a contingent moment, right? We tend to think, if we read a lot of Chinese scholarship, that Chinese control over Tibet was inevitable, that this was some long-term project, that that every sort of intervention of the Qing state in Tibet was part of some grand plan. Um, to, you know, to quote sort of Chinese sources, representing the kind of uh, inevitable and inexorable um, deepening of relations between Tibet and uh, and China proper. But you know, actually, when you read the sources, that was none of that kind of language is really there. This is a, um, a much of that is quite retro retrospective, right? Uh, and in fact, some of the primary sources which historians have previously used to discuss 1792, 1793, the invention of the Golden Urn and sort of the or the attempt to establish greater Qing control over reincarnation and, and, and the Gaelic Tibetan Buddhist establishment really relies on sources which were written much later. Most importantly, the famous uh, discourse on lamas or the Lama Shua. This is a giant uh, stone inscription which now sits in the middle of Beijing at the Yonghegong Temple. So a lot of people look at that that inscription, that imperial edict that's inscribed there, and they think, well, this is really what was going on. But in fact, um, that object and that edict really papers over a whole bunch of sort of contingent 
uh, discussions and decisions that were made over the course of the years preceding it. Mm. And um, and chapter two, right, kind of continues this discussion in the previous chapter um, on the chain promotion of the golden urn and, and later the discrediting of the oracles of central Tibet and other indigenous divination practices, right, there. Um, and so, so this chapter reconstructs the evolution of this campaign um, into a full-scale um, even assault on the credibility of the Dalai Lama, right? So how was this carried out? Um, and what were the driving forces behind it? All right. So just to, yeah, so a good question. Just to take a step back then. So um, first of all, let me just point out that much of the the um, the attempt to uh, regulate and to insert the Qing, Qing dynasty or the court or the ruler or the emperor, Qing emperor, into the process of identifying uh, reincarnate lamas um, began, of course, in the aftermath of the of the two Gurkha Wars. So in 1788 and then in 1790, 1791, the Gurkhas had invaded um, uh, Tibet, of course, from, from what's now modern day Nepal. And um, after the first invasion, 1788, 1789, actually some of the local Qing officials along with Tibetans had proposed a number of, of policy changes none of which touched on anything having to do with reincarnation. And then in 1791 and two, again, most of the Qing local officials, the Ambans who've been dispatched to Tibet, again, began on a program of, of sort of thinking, well, how can we restructure the local Tibetan government to um, make it more capable of resisting outside uh, invasions, uh, the diagnosis of most Qing officials was that actually the Tibetan government, the sort of secular or temporal government, was quite corrupted. Um, they weren't uh, doing a very good job of maintaining any kind of border defense. Uh, they had a lot of uh, unsupervised connections with neighboring states like Nepal and Sikkim and, and Bhutan and so forth. And all of this had been part of the problem that had led to the, the invasion of the Gurkhas. So basically, the the, the first diagnosis of the reasons for the Gurkha invasions was that, you know, Tibetan government was corrupt and that they hadn't managed their frontiers very well and they hadn't managed their economy very well and they had been uh, making secret arrangements and conducting secret diplomacy with the Gurkhas and that was all very problematic. None of this, again, as I say, had anything to do, at least on the first, on first glance, with problems about Tibetan Buddhism or uh, None of these local officials articulated any interest in 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 creating new laws to regulate reincarnation of of high ranking uh, lamas or troku. So the first part of my book is really trying to figure out well where did this idea come from? Why did the Qing state suddenly become so interested in in reincarnation when its officials on the ground were not that interested in reincarnation, right? And so what I find in the first act, looking into the Sort of the, um, uh, the history of the urn itself was that when the Qianlong Emperor himself and some of his particularly close officials, people that he worked with a long time, like Hushen, uh, Hulian, sort of this, actually a group of brothers, in fact, that had been very close to the Emperor for many years, it was really this small group of people who began to feel that the corruption of the Tibetan government went much, much deeper than just simply political problems. 
for economic problems and that part of the problem lay in uh, lay in the fact that they began to perceive that some of the leading reincarnate monks of the Tibetan Buddhist church or, or the Gaelic school of Tibetan Buddhism were, were in fact not really authentic. And that as they dug into that problem or that perceived problem even further, they came to believe that some of these inauthentic monks were being identified and supported by the oracles of central Tibet. So the central Tibetan government had often relied very heavily, in fact, almost always relied to a certain extent on, uh, on, on at least four different oracles located in and around Lhasa to help them deliberate and make decisions on both matters of politics and also matters of, of religious affairs. And uh, so the Chela Emperor, several of his, his closest officials really came to believe that not only were many of the leading reincarnated monks of Tibet perhaps not authentic, not who they claimed to be or who others claimed them to be, but also that behind that was a, was a system of corrupted oracles or corrupted oracular governance, governance through divination, governance through oracles uh, that had sort of uh, corrupted the overall system. So the, the real goal of the Qing state in 1792 and 93 was to, to either regulate or eliminate those, that system of reliance on local oracles. And when we talk about oracles, in specific, what we're talking about is um, uh, uh, individuals who um, had the capacity to to become vessels uh, for local protector deities in Tibet. You have a, for instance, you have the uh, an oracle. Uh, they go into their trance and they become possessed by a particular protector deity, and they can be then asked questions. And the oracle, the system of oracles is, also, is, is even more complicated than that because oftentimes the oracles, they don't speak very clearly. Um, they speak in tongues or they give strange signals. And so the oracles themselves are usually accompanied by a variety of assistants who then provide interpretation kind of in real time uh, for whatever it is the oracles are saying and doing. So you have this this system in the Qing state, look, when they began to dig into it, they really thought it was highly problematic on, on multiple levels. They weren't. Uh, and so the golden urn was really intended um, behind the scenes as, as a way to supplant, to replace those, those oracles um, with a system that was more reliable, perhaps, and, and more easily supervised by the Qing state. Um, and so the second act of my book really goes into the a kind of a campaign to persuade Tibetans and Mongols that uh, the golden urn as a as a tool for divination, as a kind of a divination technology, was more reliable than uh, than the oracles were. I see, and this is also a kind of assault on the credibility of the Dalai Lama. Yeah, um, yeah, which was quite surprising to me, actually, to read about in the historical sources. And I should say, I actually, read up, up, up on the to begin this um, discussion is that uh, 
in Manchu and Chinese language sources, uh, we see a lot of interesting stories or accounts of uh, encounters between the Qing state and the Dalai Lama and the oracles. None of this information is visible to my, as far as I can tell, from Tibetan sources. So, you know, there may be a danger here, both in my book and in, and in any further discussion about an over-reliance on, on Qing, Qing official sources uh, about some events, which I can find very little reference to in local sources, at least with regards to the events of 1793. Um, but so in 1793, the Qing uh, court became aware of another search for another reincarnation in Mongolia. Uh, um, and this was a search for a, a Trulku or a reincarnate Lama known as the uh, Erdeni Pandita. Um, and this was a, an incarnate lineage located in, in central sort of outer Mongolia. And uh, they'd received, actually, this case came to their attention because they'd received a petition, actually, from the treasurer of this particular reincarnation estate requesting that um, the state uh, recognize a new reincarnation. And this reincarnation, of course, had not been selected or identified at all using the urn. And the Qing state began to dig into this. And it increasingly became their perception that this case, the search for this Erdeni Pandita Kalama, was actually a textbook example, in their opinion, of corruption. Uh, the treasurer, for instance, from their perspective, had, had traveled multiple times to central Tibet. He'd given the oracles lots and lots of money. The oracles at first had not really recognized or not given clear advice. And this, uh, the treasurer had come back with you know, a list of names. The treasurer had prioritized the names. The names happened to be the names of you know, other elite Mongol uh, princes. You know, coincidence, coincidence. Uh, gave lots of money again to the, to the oracles. And then, you know, oh, what a coincidence, the oracles identified you know, the leading sort of local aristocrat as a, as, a, uh, as a reincarnation. I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but from the perspective of the Qing state, this was just a textbook case of, of uh, collusion between local monks, the oracles, and, uh, and uh, local nobles out in Mongolia. And the real danger here from the perspective of the Qing state was not that, not necessarily that they were worried about uh, local nobles or, or notables in Mongolia or Tibet gaining power by being identified as, uh, as reincarnate monks, right? But really the, the fear of the Qing state was that, that if this kind of activity went on and on, they really worried that people wouldn't actually find the reincarnate monks credible anymore, right? If everyone was just getting reincarnated in the, in the households of rich families, um, it really just, it left, a, it seemed like it left a really bad impression. And this wasn't just simply an impression shared by the Qing state. What I found really remarkable in, in doing the archival research is that the Qing state was consulting with uh, leading Tibetan Buddhist monks as well. And these, and these Tibetan Buddhist monks, at least from what I can read in the sources, shared the Qing state's perception that many of these uh, reincarnate lamas were not in fact authentic and that there was indeed pretty serious corruption um, among the process of finding reincarnate lamas. And actually this kind of sense of, of doubt about reincarnation can be found in a lot of different Tibetan sources. A very prominent, for instance, monk, a Sumpa Kempo, uh, uh, kind of a poly, polymath, a uh, very prominent Lama from 
uh, what's now modern day Qinghai, had also wrote extensively in his collective works about doubts about, you know, the authenticity of various prominent lamas. Uh, the great fifth Dalai Lama himself in his own autobiography had sort of joked that even he might not be a, an authentic reincarnation. So these kinds of uh, sort of cynical views of reincarnation were out there in the ether among Tibetan Buddhists themselves, and the Qing state uh, was aware of those rhetorics, but it was also deeply concerned about what would happen if, if all of a sudden there was great you know, great and growing uh, uh, debate about the authenticity of these monks, because these monks were always much more than just monks. In many parts of Tibetan Mongolia, the monks were also important local administrators. And so uh, there was great worry about what would happen if, if, their, if their control uh, fractured. Um, um, so there was this deep concern about local stability, um, because the governance of much of Inner Asia really relied on the Tibetan Buddhist Church. So, if the Tibetan Buddhist Church started to fracture over the question of the authenticity of its leadership, that was, of course, something which really scared uh, the Qing state. So, right to circle back to the, to the beginning of this uh, rather long-winded answer, um, the Qing state used the case of the Erdeni Pandita Lama from Mongolia as both a test of the Golden Urn ritual and as an opportunity to see, to sort of promote their new ritual across Mongolia and Tibet. Uh, and in the midst of this, it involved things like interrogating the Dalai Lama, of trying to um, uh, delegitimize the oracles in Tibet by subjecting them to public trials uh, in which they were forced to do things they obviously couldn't do in public. Um, and uh, so it was a fairly sophisticated, fairly, um, you know, empire-wide, this was an effort that went from uh, far outer Mongolia all the way to Lhasa, all the way to parts of what are modern-day Sichuan, so Kham and Amdo. It was really a, a very comprehensive effort to uh, to persuade Tibetan Buddhists and uh, Mongol and Tibetan aristocrats and maybe even lay, sort of average lay people that, um, that the Golden Urn was an appropriate uh, tool, divination tool, uh, that could be substituted for the oracles. All right, thank you. Um, yeah, this is a really important part of the book and, and part of um, important part of your argument overall as well. And and chapter uh, two or act two rather is entitled Shamanic Colonialism. Uh, what do you mean by uh, shamanic colonialism here? Can you explain um, for us a little bit? Yeah, so um, shamanic colonialism obviously has two parts, shamanism and colonialism. And as I said earlier in the interview, like one of the things which was which struck me as so emblematic about the Qing state's um, efforts to control Tibet and Mongolia, and it's similar to the efforts of, say, Russia or, or Britain to control their colonial peripheries, was a, was a kind of hierarchy of knowledge. And when the Qing state went out and argued sometimes really to itself, actually, in its own sort of discussions, but also in public, in public edicts, um, it argued that you know, it knew divination or it understood the oracles and it understood the Tibetan tradition on oracular governance or on the use of divination much better than Mongols and Tibetans did themselves. And uh, when the Qing state looked at the oracles, what they saw were shamans. 
And the Manchus were familiar with shamans because their own tradition, even before they'd uh, entered into the passes and taken over China, uh, shamanism and shamans had played an important part in Manchu culture. And one of the kind of fascinating things I found in the in both really Qing private discussions among themselves, secret discussions about these procedures, is the degree to which they really viewed the Tibetans as bad shamans. And that they thought their own tradition of shamanism, their own knowledge of shamanism, now interwoven with sort of their own understandings of Tibetan Buddhism, meant that they really were the legitimate people when it came to to making decisions about what kinds of divination were legitimate and what kinds of divination was illegitimate. So they were really often overtly comparing their own tradition to the to the tradition of, of Tibet when it came to divination. I see. And then in addition to that, um, your book mentions that there's also the uh, um, the other perspective, neo-confusions, right, um, in the Qing courts um, with regard to these um, sh- either shamanic or um, oracle practices, um, right? Yeah. So I, I do think that when we get to the 1780s and 1790s, um, the con- you know the the concerns which the Qing state had when it approached the governance of China were beginning to influence the way it approached the governance of Inner Asia as well. And I think that this is one of the places I hope where the book gets a little bit interesting for some readers is that especially readers familiar with history, yeah, you know, sort of the, the the literature on the new Qing history or the study of the Qing state as an empire may find this perhaps important in that. You know, much of our, much of sort of how to reduce this a little bit, but the, a prevailing view of the Qing state is that it had these kind of very autonomous constituencies, right? It, it, it governed the Mongols through, you know, in a particular way. It governed the Tibetans in a particular way. It governed Islamic sort of Central Asia in a, in a, in a, in a different Know, unique way, and then it governed China through sort of the, the the culture and language of Confucian sagehood. So when the Qing state looked at different parts of its empire, it looked at different parts of the empire with different kinds of cultural discourses of different kinds of languages, right? But you know that may have held uh, true for much of the say the 1600s or the 1700s, but I think by the 1780s and 1790s. Both the emperor and many of his uh, important officials who were busy working on inner Asia policy were increasingly influenced uh, and looking at inner Asia from a Confucian perspective. Uh, and one of the other reasons which probably drove their interest in divination was uh, a more traditional view of emperorship based on Confucian traditions of emperorship, which really argued that the emperor was and should be the sole pivot between heaven and earth, that that the imperial Chinese state needed to monopolize divination. And this was something which the Qing state now had to do in Inner Asia. It was not that concerned with local divination practices up until I think really the 1790s. But in in the 1790s, the Qing state was very concerned now with divination. And that I think reflected some of its historical concerns uh, that it always had with rule within China proper. 
Yeah, this is really fascinating. And in chapter three or act three, um, Ando was speaking in code. Um, you give it a case study of the monastic university situated in Amdo, right? A place right at the crossroads of China, Tibet, and Mongolia, um, the Labron Tashikil uh, monastery. And here you look at the tension between the monastery leadership desire to locate the rebirth of their founding lama according to their own procedures. Right, and then um, the Qing Emperor Qianlong's covert operation in opposition, um, on the other hand. So how was this tension negotiated, and what was the role of the Golden Urn in this case? So this is a case um, from 1795, 96, and 1797. Um, and this this case involves uh, a reincarnate lama called the, the Zhamyang Shepa, who was really probably one of the most prominent uh, reincarnate lamas or Choku in the Amdo region, but was really one of the most important influential figures and in really in, in, throughout Inner Asia. Uh, and so the death of this monk, the second generation of that monk in the early 1790s and the search for his successor was, was of enormous political and religious significance to the Qing state. Uh, and this is really perhaps the most important test of the urn that had come since it was invented in 1792. So this is about four or five years after the initial um, uh, invention of the urn ritual. And so this was, it was important to the Qing state. Um, it was important because they wanted to set a precedent. And of course it was important because this guy was very politically and, and religiously significant. I think it's also important because they never stated this in their in, in any of the documents I read, but they could not have been ignorant of the fact that that this monk's community had been divided very very dangerously already once in the past. The search for the second generation of this monk had been very very divisive in Amdo, and had resulted in the division of the monastic community and the establishment of really competing candidates, and in fact, some considerable violence. So really, this case was a good example to the Qing state of just the kinds of damage that could be done if there wasn't a clear and and, and smooth and, and convincing candidate uh, to replace or to succeed the former, the former monk. Um, so in this particular case, what I thought was really so this is one of the cases I have to say, which was exciting to me and I never expected to write about. Um, this is a case that really, the significance of this all emerged just reading Manchu language materials. And when I was reading those sort of the secret Manchu language reports from Amdo and, and Tibet, they talked about this, this, this search. And um, uh, in some of the earlier reports, they actually were requests from local Tibetan uh, local Tibetan and then Manchu officials to allow the monastery to identify its own candidate. In fact, the Manchu language, the Manchu uh, official in the region reported that in sort of 1796 uh, that that the community had already settled on a new candidate. They'd already identified the successor, um, and this official wrote to the Qing state, sort of requesting a waiver, requesting that the Qing state not. Uh, not implement the gold nerd. Um, and uh, uh, when the ruler read about this, 
he wrote again some secret messages to Lhasa and said, no, look, we need to handle this, but that, that, that child cannot be the one that's selected. And so, so seeing in the Manchu materials this information, I realized or found something which I'd never seen before in the Tibetan language chronicles. So the Tibetan language chronicles write about uh, the emergence of a different candidate as uh, the legitimate candidate, and they, they don't mention any kind of controversy. So what was really fascinating was that the, the Manchu sources revealed a controversy that the Tibetan language sources had obscured. And so the argument that I make here in this chapter is that um, using a variety of rhetorical uh, and other devices, it was really actually local Tibetan elites who um, helped the Qing state legitimize the golden urn ritual uh, for the local community. And that this process didn't just happen overnight, it actually required almost a century of writing. So Tibetan Buddhist authors and historians at this monastery actually were forced to write uh, multiple times over a hundred years uh, in ways which I worked to eradicate um, any knowledge that the community had actually originally had a different candidate as its preferred uh, successor. Um, I think that's what that was for me really quite interesting. So it was discovering in the Manchu materials that there was in fact originally a different candidate that had been strongly supported by this monastic community uh, and that the Tibetan sources completely ignored that candidate and wrote about the one which the Qing state had ultimately selected. Um, so I thought that was really actually kind of quite an interesting story and especially because it goes against many of the assumptions we have uh, based on sort of modern nationalist uh, accounts of, of Tibetan history. So this wasn't a case of Tibetans resisting the Qing state. It was a case of Tibetans working in ways uh, that actually assisted uh, the Qing state and legitimized uh, this ritual, although they may not have seen it in those lights. Um, <clears throat> and here we see also that the Qing state sort of successfully uh, getting its way uh, in a place where uh, it didn't have a whole lot of power. Yeah, this part is indeed really interesting. And um, I think your use of these Manchu um, archival sources are, you know, heavily understudied, uh, really brings a fresh perspective um, on these issues. And um, so in this chapter, you reveal the codes, right, by which Qing elites, both Manchu and Tibetan, communicated. Um, can you speak more about this discovery and what do you mean by codes? How, how did these work? Yeah, so... Um, so what I kind of began to sense is that, so even in the, in the Tibetan, so in the Tibetan language sources, there's sort of, you can read them on two levels. Um, you can read them as we all have traditionally read them. For instance, these, uh, biographies of the, of Tibetan monks or of this particular monk, uh, as sort of a simplistic, um, account of, of his discovery, uh, his legitimacy, his career, and so on. But if you know, actually, on the basis of Manchu sources, that this guy's legitimacy was actually quite controversial, when you reread the Tibetan language sources, you actually find little clues. Sometimes they're actually not even that subtle. And so one gets the sense that Tibetans 
who were in the know or who had witnessed these events were still leaving traces of their concerns about this particular uh, identification process. They're leaving traces which would only be visible to other people who kind of knew other sort of uh, Qing period elites. Uh, so for example, um, in one of the, uh, in the biography of a gentleman who was tasked with traveling to a Tibetan gentleman who's tasked with traveling to Lhasa uh, to oversee the selection of the of the his his leading monk, the Zhanyang Shepa, and who got to know the Anban, the Qing officials in Lhasa, and also got to know and talk with the regent, the Tibetan regent in Lhasa, and supervised or sort of was there witnessing the golden urn ritual. We have recorded you know, or manufactured uh, a conversation between him and the regent in which he says this, it's really fascinating. And so the regent says, asks him, so what do you sort of, what do you think about the various candidates? So there's sort of two or three candidates. And the regent says, I've heard that the first candidate is the one which is uh, very promising. And uh, the, the man from the locality says, he doesn't say anything. He, he sort of hedges and he says, well, as you know, they're all good candidates and we Amdawas speak in code and the Kampas, the people from the Kampas region sort of feign ignorance. And so you can see here in this sort of uh, very coy conversation signals that all was not well, right? With this, with this search process. Now, I think most readers would just sort of skim over that. Um, particularly a hundred years later, but those people who had witnessed these events or had been around uh, LeBron Monastery, the home of the Jalang Shepa in the 1790s, early 1800s, probably would have been a little bit aware of this. Um, also, the other interesting thing is that we learn a lot here too about the circulation of information within Inner Asia. Um, and what was really impressive to me was that you have reports from the Qing state, which were not really public or not meant to be public. These are not edicts. These were letters, uh, reports written by local officials to the Qing state, uh, which you could find quoted in their entirety in Tibetan, in Tibetan historical materials. So it's a sense that the Qing state was actually tolerating or even leaking particular forms of information very strategically. Uh, another good example of this, um, is the fact that I found a draft of letters which were written um, by leading Tibetan monks in Beijing, which were addressed to the Dalai Lama in Lhasa, in which the, these monks in Beijing were trying to uh, assure the Dalai Lama that the Golden Urn and other sort of current interventions in Tibet were in fact well-meaning and that they were very legitimate and that they had kind of a historical basis to them. Or a, or a sort of theological basis within Tibetan Buddhism. And again, here you sort of see, and these are letters, the drafts were written in Manchu, and it sort of pretty clear seems, seems to me that the Qing state was probably quite overtly, you know, using uh, Tibetans uh, to write, you know, having them write letters back to Tibet uh, to, to conduct propaganda on their behalf. So, you know, there's this really fascinating way in which we, this case allows us to see just how certain kinds of information circulated and certain information didn't and how people had to speak in kind of codes, often to communicate 
some of the problems they, they observe, but also the ways in which the Qin state could very, very use in a very sophisticated fashion to bend uh, Buddhist elites themselves to get its message across. Wow, this is really fascinating material and, and this really nuanced reading of um, their communications. Um, it's definitely one of the uh, um, the highlights of the book. So I urge our uh, listeners to pick up a copy and, and read more of these examples. Um, and in the conclusion, um, Paradoxes of the Urn and the Limits of Empire, you point out... Um, paradoxes right of the golden earth tradition and even some unexpected implications brought on by the tradition that highlights both the creative agencies of tibetan buddhas on one hand and as well as limitations of the Qing empire on the other um can you speak a bit more about this yeah and um you know the the conclusion is really trying to do to make i want to make thing, one thing really clear and i'm not even sure that my conclusion does this super successfully and it's that I don't want to overstate the significance of the urn. This is just one small uh, ritual or law uh, that had a kind of a limited impact uh, within uh, Tibetan Buddhist regions. Uh, this is one small aspect of a policy. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so the, on um, what I find really remarkable though, nonetheless, is that, as I've already mentioned, is that, so in, on, um, many levels it seemed like the Qing state was actually remarkably successful in taking actually what had been originally a actually a Ming uh, a Ming period or a Chinese bureaucratic ritual. A ritual was which was originally intended uh, was used within the, the board of civil appointments to uh, to hand out or to allocate sort of jobs within the Chinese bureaucracy. That was the, that was where this ritual came from originally. And it was exported to Tibet, and somehow, through the efforts of both the Qing officials and through local Tibetan elites, it became a a Tibetan a Tibetan ritual, a Tibetan Buddhist ritual, a divination uh, um, tool. And so that transformation was is pretty impressive, and I think it sort of demonstrates uh, kind of the some of the reasons why the Qing state's control over places like Mongolia and Tibet was really durable and how its rule could be sustained well into, you know, the early 20th century. But I also wanted to point out that this was, you know, its rule was limited, uh, indirect. And one of the reasons why Tibetan Buddhist elites, I think, supported this ritual and the Qing state more generally is because it, it, they really reaped a lot of benefits from imperial patronage uh, and from the overall framework that the empire provided. No, I think that it's worthwhile to pause and remember that over the course of the 200 years that you know, the Qing state sort of dominated Inner Asia, say from the 1750s when they finally defeated their own the major competitor there, the Jungar Mongols, all the way down to the early 20th century, they really provided a kind of environment in which the, the Gelug Church, the, the leading school of Tibetan Buddhism, could really expand uh, and profit in ways that were unprecedented. Um, and the other thing is that I think a lot of our assumptions about sort of Sino-Tibetan relations have to do with, derive from a kind of sense of a conflict between China and Tibet, and that uh, that the uh, and that the Tibetans, you know, took every opportunity possible to uh, diminish and avoid uh, or mitigate sort of 
Qing or Chinese influence within Lhasa or other parts of, of Tibet. And that they fundamentally thought that any sort of interventions that Qing state took were, of course, would be at their expense. And I think that, that that sort of narrative is fundamentally wrong. I think that the Tibetan elites accurately perceive the Qing state as actually often working to enhance their own local power. In other words, the Qing state was often working to enhance the power of Tibetan elites over their own indigenous political and religious systems. And the Golden Urn was a good example of that because uh, it was an effort to uh, homogenize and regulate the processes by which people identified reincarnations. And I think that many Tibetan elites were very sympathetic to that effort. Uh, they wanted to see these processes centralized under the control of the government in Lhasa and then by default, the government in Beijing. Uh, and it also played into the notions of an expanded greater Tibet because the Qing state in the context of the Golden Urn gave Tibetan elites in Lhasa the privilege of supervising reincarnations now from regions well outside of the areas traditionally governed by the, the Lhasa government. So Amdo and Kham, uh, you know, incarnations from Amdo and Kham were now required to, at least high ranking ones were required to have the Golden Urn procedure conducted in, in Lhasa. So I think that the, the Golden Urn ritual quite paradoxically actually played into the deeper desires of the, the Gaelic school and other Tibetan elites um, for their own kind of political and religious power. Oh, very interesting. And um, so lastly, what has been the role of the Golden Urn in the People's Republic of China then? Um, and maybe its role in the future? Uh, so, I mean, that's, gosh, that's really a subject for another book. And uh, originally, actually, I thought about writing a book about reincarnation in 20th century China. Uh, and uh, uh, I think I won't because it required too much research. And it's also really difficult to, we don't have archival ar access, of course, to um, contemporary to contemporary China and the, and the Chinese Communist Party and to its uh, uh, inner policymaking process like we did for the Qing period. But anyways, you know, I think one point I would make is that the, the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party resurrected the Golden Urn ritual in 1995. And, and even then, I don't think, much like in the 1790s, I don't think that they really thought this through. Um, it wasn't as if, I don't think that, that the, the, the Chinese Communist Party had been planning for decades uh, to roll out the Golden Urn when the next Dalai Lama or Pancha Lama died. Uh, and the reason I say that is because there wasn't really, you know, the Golden Urn was not a prominent feature. Like there weren't that many Chinese-based scholars talking about it prior to 1995. Uh, it really didn't seem to be on the radar. It seems to me that in the crisis that the Chinese government faced in 1995, when you had the Dalai Lama overseas announcing his own candidate, uh, that they kind of, they had a scramble for some tool by which to maintain control of the process. And of course, they want to maintain control of the, the process of identifying reincarnate uh, Trokhu or Lamas for two important reasons. First of all, because it's extraordinarily important for their uh, rhetorical claims of sovereignty in Tibet. But secondly, because 
they need to control this process because they need they need to physically control the bodies of future reincarnate lamas. They need these people to stay within China. They need to be uh, um, subjected to so-called quote-unquote patriotic education. The Chinese government needs to be confident that future reincarnate lamas are people they can trust. They don't want a repeat of uh, the, the, I think it's the 13th Karmapa. They don't want a re repetition of uh, the 14th Dalai Lama. They don't want prominent Gayluk or other you know, Tibetan Buddhist monks in exile in other parts of the world, you know, uh, expounding on the flaws of the Chinese political, you know, political system, or God forbid, claiming that Tibet or Mongolia or other places are, are, are independent from China. So they're desperate to, to make sure that when a child is announced, they have the child, that they can take that child to Beijing and that they can educate that, that child uh, and control that child in ways that they see appropriate. So the Golden Urn will remain extremely important because it's sort of a, uh, a convenient tool by which the Chinese government can say, you know, we legitimately have a right to, uh, to, to be involved in this process. Oh, I see. Well, Dr. Oitman, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time and thank you so much for sharing your incredible research with us. This was a really, really great book. Um, and thank you for, um, you know, sending the book to me and I really enjoyed reading the whole thing. Um, before we conclude our interview, however, uh, could you tell us a bit more about your current research projects? What have you been working on recently? So, um, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I'm kind of going back now to my original project, which is using local sources from modern day Qinghai and Gansu uh, to understand the broader history of, sort of local society and, and especially legal culture in Tibet or in, in Gansu and Qinghai during the, from the 1600s down to the mid 20th century. And I think this is important because. Uh, I think that there's a there's been a view that Tibetan society has always has been uh, highly autonomous from neighboring societies and particularly from any kinds of interventions by the Qing state. And if the Golden Urn is a good example of a way in which aspects of, of Tibetan society were were changed in important ways, I think that I've been finding that the Qing state was deeply involved. <clears throat> In the local legal culture of uh, Tibetan communities, particularly in in uh, Amdo and Kham, really from the from the mid 1700s right down into the into the end of the dynasty, and this is something which people haven't really really seen before, largely because they really haven't had access to kind of local documents. And what I think is kind of exciting is that about these sources and about the story I'm trying to tell in this new book is that really the interaction between local Tibetans and Qing period legal forums um, <clears throat> played an important role both in, in inventing a new notion of quote unquote traditional Tibetan law, but also really had a big impact on daily lives. So people's uh, pious activities, their trips to monasteries, um, the interactions between monasteries, um, uh, the questions of property rights, uh, succession, all of these things were uh, questions were often, 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 but not always, 
uh, resolved um, through recourse to uh, chain legal institutions. Uh, so it's a kind of an interesting um, set of uh, historical processes, which I don't think that people have really seen before. And so it's been exciting to read these kinds of sources. So the new book is going to be called, it's hopefully going to be out next year, it's called When Tibetans, uh, when Tibetans Came to Court, uh, sort of a history of uh, Tibetan legal culture on the Sino-Tibetan Sino frontier. Great. Um, that sounds like a really interesting project. Um, I think our listeners will certainly be looking forward to it. And when your new book comes out, um, hopefully we'll get to interview again. And finally, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, um, this has been a great interview. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure right. to talk with you. Okay, great. All right. So take care.